Hey there, Sports History fan. Arnie Chapman here from the Sports History Network. Now, before you jump into this episode, I wanted to share with you an exciting giveaway we have going on with Homefield Apparel. We have a digital $50 gift card to homefieldapparel.com for one lucky fan of the Sports History Network. All you got to do is head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways to sign up. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hello, old sports, and welcome to the Hello, Old Sports podcast on the Sports History Network. We'd like to thank you for once again listening to the Hello, Old Sports podcast. Andrew, how are you today? I am doing excellent, Dan. I am... uh just digging out from a a blizzard we had here in the Northeast, you know, New York, Pennsylvania, Jersey, Southern New England area. We got, uh, got pretty well blanketed with it, um, on Monday. So at a day off work and I know a lot of people are still, uh, still dealing with it. So I'm, uh, Excited to put that in the rear view and go back to a time when basketballs had laces in them, basketball shorts had belts in them, and baskets themselves had bottoms to them. (laughs) (laughs) So we've been doing this, I think we've done about 17 episodes so far, and I think I should note that we're sort of recording this in sort of a strange time period. We're going to have to take a week or two off from recording, and then we've got some other things coming up with the show. We have a Super Bowl trivia episode that we did that we thought would be airing before the Super Bowl, but that's unfortunately has not happened now. So we've, we've kind of, you know, we're not sure as we record this, when some of these various episodes are going to air throughout the month of February and into early March. But Dan is being diplomatic. We are holding out for more money. (laughs) last day of our contract and we are now holding out uh, as part of a negotiation so we um as you know if you're a regular listener we spent most of january doing football related episodes we did our qb mount rushmore's which was two episodes we did an episode on super bowl 25 which we really enjoyed doing we did uh, and then before that, we'd done quite a few baseball episodes. We did our Yankee and Giant, or I'm sorry, our Yankee all-time team, our New York National League all-time team. We did an episode on the Baseball Hall of Fame. We've done episodes on boxing, but we haven't done any basketball-specific episodes yet. And we decided that February, as football ends and as the winter sports heat up, we thought that this would be a good time to dive into some basketball topics. So just to give you an idea of sort of what we have on tap, we have uh, later in the month, we have an episode, at least one, maybe two on all time starting fives for each NBA team, similar to what we did with the quarterback Mount Rushmore. We have our first ever author interview coming up in a couple of weeks on hello, old sports with, Paul Nepper, who wrote a book called The Knicks of the 90s, which is a great book, and we're looking forward to talking to him about that. It's a favorite topic of Andrew and I, The Knicks of the 90s. We are likely to do an episode in early March about LaSalle basketball, Andrew's alma mater, and talk about some of the great moments and figures in the history of LaSalle basketball. But we thought it would be a good 
place to start this week with sort of looking at the history of the NBA and maybe not the whole history, but looking at sort of the NBA and then sort of some of the rival leagues that have sort of risen up throughout the decades that the NBA has been in existence, whether that's the ABA, whether that's some of the leagues that came before and sort of talk about those leagues, what those leagues were, and then how they impacted the NBA and brought about whether it was expansion or just changes within the NBA to one extent or another. We anticipate that this will be the first in a series. We're going to do this with football in another month or so. We're going to eventually do this with baseball. And so this idea of competitor leagues to the main league, whether that's the NFL, whether that's the NBA, or whether that's the Major League Baseball. So we'll sort of talk about how those leagues, how competitor leagues became rival leagues, how competitor leagues became equals, and how some of them just sort of faded away. And so that is the topic for tonight as we talk about some of the rival leagues that have developed in the world of professional basketball through the years and through the decades. Before we start, I would just like to encourage you, as always, to interact with the show. Find us on Facebook at Hello World Sports Podcast. Email us at HelloWorldSports at gmail.com. Please follow, rate, and review us on iTunes or your podcast app of choice. We're, we're excited for a new year. We sort of, between the Super Bowl stuff and the In Memoriam, which lasted uh, for most of December, we sort of we're sort of locked in on a couple of different themes, but now that those things have gone away, now that we're into February and March, we can sort of go all over the place. And we're really excited about that. Andrew, uh, did you have anything to add before we got started? No, I, you're right. I think I say this on my, my weekly show, which is more about current sports, but the NFL takes a lot of oxygen when it's going on. And football is my favorite sport and the NFL specifically, but it's, it's whenever the NFL is on, or having a big off-season thing like the draft or the start of free agency, it's always in the center ring. So even on a show that's devoted to sports history, it's hard not to talk a lot about football and the playoffs and the lead-up to the Super Bowl. But now that that's, by the time this airs over and we're in what passes for an NFL off-season, we can kind of explore the studio space, so to speak. And, you know, some of the episodes I've enjoyed the most so far have been ones where we've gone kind of a, a deep dive on a specific topic. Like the one I wasn't really expecting to, I don't want to say like, I really enjoyed our, one of our early episodes. It was on Tampa sports, which was not something I'd particularly, you know, given a lot of thought to in the past, but, you know, to be able to sort of narrowly focus. So with some of these, even though they seem encompassing, like this is basically the history of professional basketball in America. We're kind of narrowly focusing it to leagues and competitions and new teams and things like that. So, you know, I, I think it'll be, it'll be good to have a lot of topics to choose from, but then to be able to really zero in on a topic once we've selected it for that week. Absolutely. All right. So shall we start with the, History of rival basketball leagues in the United States. Yes, let's uh, let's get into that. And and just as we sort of start, it's basketball is kind of a weird one. With you know, baseball is almost its own category because ba- the, the history of baseball is part of American folklore. Literally, there's literally you know 
origin story fables about baseball and Abner Doubleday and things like that. They're almost akin to George Washington chopping down the cherry tree. There's some sort of moral in there. Football is almost easy to do. It's like professional football sprung up in tiny Midwestern towns and it wasn't something to take seriously. And then it evolved with teams like the Bears and the Packers and the Giants. And then hockey to an extent is just like it was Canada and anywhere it was cold. And that was hockey. Basketball is a little different. We always, you know, as we'll talk about some of this, like basketball was invented by one guy. It wasn't evolved like a lot of other sports. It was a guy who sat down and wrote up a bunch of rules. And then the early leagues and the early NBA, it was a lot of teams and towns in upstate New York and being from sort of the border of what you would consider upstate New York. I would always joke that like, they were basically one degree away from Poughkeepsie having a team. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you look at some of the teams, the, you know, the Rochester's of the world, then uh, you kind of remark at how different and Syracuse and places like that and how different the NBA was in terms and, and all the basketball leagues were and that there's, it's a lot more disparate in terms of the different leagues and things like that. So, so, where do you want to start? So what I have written down as I turn my pages is just to sort of the way I look at it, I wrote down right at my, right at the top to sort of set the stage. And then we can go backwards is the first NBA season, which was the BAA, but it you know was basically the NBA, uh, the 1946, 1947 season. And the teams you have were, First season, Cleveland, Pittsburgh, Detroit, Toronto. Uh, all of those teams lasted basically one year. They lasted just one season. And then St. Louis, Chicago, Washington, Providence. Those were teams that were around for a couple of years. And the only teams from them that really survived, and if I'm wrong in any of this, please correct me, were the Warriors, who are now in Golden State, but still referred to as the Warriors, the Knicks and the Celtics from that very first NBA season, BA, BAA season. In 46-47. Yes. That is correct. There are, and there's some interesting sort of interplay. And I think, like you said, I think we're going to go backwards and we're going to talk about some of the other leagues. The NBA counts the 46-47 BAA season, which was the Basketball Association of America, they count that as their sort of their official beginning when they celebrated their 50th year or the 50th anniversary in the 90, that would have been the 96, 97 season, much like the NFL with the APFA, which we talked about in our 1920 episode, the NBA considers the BAA in 46, 47 as the beginning of what they know is NBA basketball. So I think it's next season, probably in 21-22, the NBA will celebrate its 75th anniversary. Keep in mind that it wasn't known as the NBA quite yet. It, that was a couple of years off, and we'll talk about why that was in a couple of minutes. Yeah, so it that was the first season that sort of gets recognized. But like everything else, you know, in, in, and I, I don't want to keep comparing it to baseball, but baseball is the one that where it's most familiar, at least to me. You know, 
you could trace modern era baseball back to a certain, you know, to several different points. Do you say 1903 when the first World Series was? Do you say the founding of the National League in the 1870s? And then there's sort of varying degrees of there's different schools of thought about whether stuff before that counts. So for the NBA and professional basketball, it's sort of, okay, everybody agrees that by the 46, 47 season, we had what we would consider the lineage to modern professional basketball. But that obviously wasn't the beginning of basketball that would be considered professional. The first one I have written down is the ABL. Is there anything before that chronologically that we should touch on? No, I actually didn't even have that. So why don't we go ahead with that one? Okay, so what I have is the ABL, which was the American Basketball League. Lucky for them, that was what it was called because that it matches up with the initials. From 1925, that's a terrible joke. but So that league was from 1925 to 1955. It had six seasons from 25 to 31 and then sort of restarted pretty quickly after that. It was founded by the president of the recently founded three-year-old National Football League. It was uh, by Joseph Carr. And then George Hallis was the owner of the Chicago Bruins and department store Max Rosenblum, a part owner of the NFL's Cleveland Bulldogs, financed the Cleveland Rosenblums. Um, I can guess where they got their name from. <laughs> um, and then you even had future NFL over owner George Preston Marshall, uh, who at the time was an owner of a chain of laundries, was the owner of the Washington Palace Five. And then there were other teams in Boston, Brooklyn, Buffalo, Detroit, Fort Wayne, and Rochester. The league was divided into two halves. Outside of one year, they played like a winner of the first half, played the winner of the second half in a five-game championship. And this was the league where, and I'll, I'll actually test you how much you know about this. Um, Five games into the 1926-27 season, uh, the Brooklyn team was replaced by a team. And the reason I ever even heard of this team was because when I went to see LaSalle play in Northeastern uh, in Boston, you know, seven, eight years ago, I saw the LaSalle basketball team play an away game at Northeastern, and they were talking about the building Northeastern plays basketball in is also a hockey arena, and it's got some history to it. And it was the home of this team at one point, which was the original Celtics. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that I had not really been too familiar with them and their existence prior to that. The original Celtics were a team based in New York City. They are, I believe the, the entire team has been inducted into the Hall of Fame. I think they're... There was, and they were a team that was based in New York City area. One of their top players was a guy by the name of Nat Holman, who later went on to great fame as the coach of CCNY for almost 40 years. And he was the coach of CC. He's in the Hall of Fame. And he was the coach of CCNY Community College, or sorry, City College of New York when they had the whole point shaving scandal in 1950 and that type of thing. So other players who played on those original Celtics, Joe Lapchick, who would go on to coach not only St. John's on two different tenures, but also 
the Knicks of the 40s and 50s that went to the finals a bunch of times. So they were sort of the original great basketball team and the team as a whole, which the Basketball Hall of Fame does this, unlike baseball or football, the team as a whole was inducted into the Hall of Fame in 1959. I'm not going to say that I know a lot about these original Celtics, but it, if you sort of are around basketball history, you you tend to hear about the original Celtics and they are sort of the first prominent team. And I, I would assume, although I don't know this for a fact, served as the inspiration for the actual Boston Celtics that came into being in the mid-1940s. So just a couple of things on this league, sort of innovations that, again, you kind of don't think that stuff like this needs to be innovated, but it obviously does. Like in a, This is an aside, but I'll get back to the league in a second. I never realized, if you read the original rules of basketball, and it's kind of funny to... You can almost do it like when you hear about the Constitution in the U.S., where it's like, you know, you won't find that in the original rules of basketball. It doesn't say anything about dribbling in the original rules of basketball. I knew it, that. It says you can't run with the ball. So the first, like, two days that basketball existed, for the most part, what guys would do is just throw it up in the air and catch it as they ran. And I guess, like, within a couple of days, they were like, no, 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 you, you have to bounce it. Because I think they envisioned just that you would like pass it and never advance it with it in your hands. I think that was what Naismith envisioned. Mm-hmm. But anyway, so to get back to a little more modern times with this league, from like a business standpoint, they made players sign contracts. And then from a league standpoint, it says backboards were mandatory, which backboards existed, but it wasn't necessarily a thing that was a staple of every basketball game or, you know, organized game even new rules such as three second lane violations and foul outs were implemented another rule the aba abl implemented was the collegiate rule which eliminated the double dribble so you know some early innovations took place in this league things that we probably take for granted that there was a time they never existed but i guess a double dribble you know somebody had to decide you can't do that twice. You know what I mean? So that was what happened in the ABL. So they were around for a while in the late twenties into the early thirties. And then there was like a two year break. And then they came back in 33 and last to 55. Some of the teams, the Baltimore bullets who then joined the BAA. Now they're not linear to the current Washington wizards, previously Washington bullets, Baltimore bullets, but that's obviously where they got the name from. And then there was teams in, Bridgeport, Boston, Brooklyn, several teams in Brooklyn, Carbondale, Pennsylvania, which is, I believe, on the short list for an expansion team next. Uh, <laughs> you know, so lots of Northeastern teams, that kind of thing. The Manchester British Americans. <laughs> um, so anyway, that, that was the ABL. That was kind of the first one I had written down. 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, um, or I guess by the mid-50s, it was gone as the NBA you know, really took off. You forgot my favorite team from the 1930-31 season. Who's Do you have the list in front of you? Uh, thir- see, I'm looking at the more modern one. Let me go back to the 30-31 the season. See if you can figure out what my favorite team is from the 1930-31 uh, the season. All right, let me see. Because I have the list of all of them. So I'm just like from that era. So I got to find a team. They were only in the league one year. The t- That's what it says. Okay. I'm just going to read this. Think about how many different 
parts of this. It, I'll say the name, but before that, I'll, I'll there's a show community that I really like, and the <laughs> it was like the the original the the original mascot's name was the Greendale Drunken Savages, and then they changed it, but to something equally as offensive, but somehow more enlightened. It was like the Greendale, like you know, like red businessmen or something like that. So the name of this team was the Toledo Red Men Tobaccos. <laughs> and it, Which I think they, that was probably named after Red Man Tobacco, right? By the way, they won the league in 1929-30 in the end. They were in the NDL in 1929-30. But um, so the ABL, you know, some all jokes aside, you know, some early innovations. It was obviously by modern standards sort of a sort of a, you know, very rudimentary league, but basketball was a rudimentary, basketball was only like 40 years old at this point. So, you know, for a league to last 30 years, even modestly is pretty impressive. And I don't know, I didn't, wasn't able to find in my research what led them to fold in the 1950s, but you got to figure by the 1950s, the NBA was the NBA. I mean, guys like Bob Cousy and Bob Pettit and Dolph Shays, you know, all-time greats of the NBA were already in the league at this point, and this other league is sort of kicking around. It's just funny how sort of like we've talked about, this will now be probably in a lot of ways the third conversation like this that we've had. We talked about the birth of the NFL, and then in the same episode of the same series, we talked about the birth of the Negro National League, both of those were centered around the Midwest, whereas this and be this early basketball, professional basketball, at this at least this league very much centered around New York in specific, and then New Jersey, New England, to a lesser extent, maybe a little bit of the Midwest, but very New York centric from the beginning. Yeah. Um, kind of the opposite of football, like we talked about, we're expanding to the East Coast, professional football, expanding to the East Coast was seen as a must have. This was really all some of these leagues had, even in markets that even at the time, New Britain, Connecticut was not what you would consider a professional sports market or really a market of any kind. So I think if you really want to talk about the actual sort of genesis of what we know is the NBA. You have to start with the National Basketball League, the NBL, which started playing in 1937. Yep. So the NBL, um, one thing I did think, well, what I have listed is the teams who sort of came from the NBL. I have, this is where we got the Lakers, the Royals, who then became the Kings much later, um, the Pistons, the Hawks, who you know still exist even though they've moved around, moved around a million times, and the Nationals, who were the Syracuse Nationals and are now known as the Philadelphia 76ers. Correct. So founded in 1937 by, created by General Electric, GE, Firestone. He was a World War I um, hero, right? Who? General Electric? Oh, God. <laughs> Incorrect. It was founded by GE Firestone in Goodyear. And as you might expect from an electrical company and two 
tire companies, this one was very much based in the Midwest. And it was a lot of guys who worked for those companies during the day and then played in the league sort of during off hours. I'll give you a list of the early, some of the early teams, the Akron Firestone non-skids. So named after tires, the Akron Goodyear Wingfoots. And isn't the Wingfoot, that's this, that's the Goodyear logo, isn't it? So you had the, the Columbus Athletic Supply, the Oshkosh All-Stars, the Indianapolis Kautskys, K-A-U-T-S-K-Y-S. I have to admit, I don't know what exactly that means. Polish. Yeah, it probably is, you know, obviously Midwest, 1930s, probably very, very Polish, Central European type of thing. And they sort of struggle along, but they do evolve as teams go on. You mentioned some of the teams that in one way or another get their start there. Bob DeVees, who is a Hall of Famer and considered one of the early stars of the NBA, he gets his start in the NBL, wins uh, wins an MVP award with that league. George Mikan plays his first two years in the NBL, first with the Chicago Gears for one year, and then with the Minneapolis Lakers. The Minneapolis Lakers actually start off for one season in the NBL, and then they defect to the BAA in the mid-40s. Yeah, I saw that here that I I didn't realize that, but that they had actually sort of as a whole team jumped into the BAA at, you know, while the, both leagues were still going on, I can't really think of, you know, with baseball and football and things like that, you always hear about players, but you don't hear about a whole team sort of jumping. And I know it was a much different era, but you know, it was especially with a star, the magnitude of George Mikan, who became the earliest star of the NBA you have to imagine that was a monumental shift in sort of the power balance such as it was for the BAA or for professional basketball. Four teams leave the NBL for the BAA in the 48-49 season. I want to see if I can get a list of who those teams were. Um, Fort Wayne, which becomes the Pistons. Minneapolis, which becomes the Lakers, which is the Lakers and later becomes the L.A. Lakers. The Rochester Royals, who you mentioned them briefly, the Rochester Royals later become the Cincinnati Royals. They then become the Kansas City Kings and then the Kansas City Omaha Kings and then eventually just the Sacramento Kings. And then the Indianapolis franchises does fold after a couple of years. But three of those teams NBA teams, which exist even to this day, get their start in the NBL and then jump to the BAA for the 48-49 season. A couple of things I want to mention about the NBL. They only had 10-minute quarters, so when the BAA came in in the mid-1940s, they, in addition to just flat-out encouraging teams to defect from one league to the other, the BAA tries to compete by going to 12-minute quarters. They actually even briefly flirt with 15-minute quarters, but they soon realize that that would just be too much. So they only do um, they only do 12-minute quarters, which is a change. Basketball games had not been that long previously. Yeah, and that's another one where you kind of think, oh, well, of course games would be that long. But you think about, you know, 
there's a big difference in college games being 40 minutes versus professional games being 48 minutes. That's a significant difference. And in terms of how it's organized. So, you know, a lot of these things that we take for granted now in terms of sort of standards of rules and things like that are, they had to start somewhere is kind of the, kind of the point. Um, what was your second point on this? Cause I don't want to step on you with my point. I think the other thing I was going to mention is that much like with some of these other leagues that we talked about, the, um, the, the, the Negro leagues and the football early on, the teams are sort of in charge of their own booking. So there is sort of a loose confederation of a league, but teams are also scheduling games against non-league opponents. And so it's this weird hybrid, sort of like we saw in the early days of the NFL. Yeah, where it's one of the things we consider as a league now is everybody plays a standard schedule. And, you know, it might not in baseball, they call it an unbalanced schedule where you play a lot of teams in your division and, you know, different things this year with, obviously with COVID and having to, to schedule different pods and things in hockey and, and all of this, we consider it like, well, you're not a league if you're not playing a standard schedule and if everybody's not playing the same number of games and things like that. But these were things that, you know, even in the forties, what we're talking about here, professional team sports were still a fairly new concept and really baseball was the only one that was doing it. I guess by the 40s, football was doing it too. But like some of the rules we think of really didn't, you know, I don't mean play, I don't mean rules on the court or the field, but like who says you can't have a league if everybody plays different numbers of games? You know, now we're so ingrained that no, that's, it's not a league then. But back then it was like, hey, we'll play whoever we can play and, and, you know, we'll just, whatever the booker like can get us, I guess, and tells us what to do, we'll just, you know, We'll just play those teams. Absolutely. A couple of other things in 42, 43, I think probably based due to player shortages because of the war, several of the NBL teams integrate, which they're not the first professional sports teams to integrate because the NFL had briefly been integrated in the 1920s. But by the forties, there were no more black players and that doesn't come along until the mid 1940s and a rival league to the NFL, which is the AAFC start to bring in some black players. So that's something worth noting. And then in 1945-46, the 45-46 season, which is interestingly enough, the last year before the BAA is founded, the Rochester Royals win the NBL championship. And do you know who one of the players is on the Rochester Royals in 1945, 46? I do not. No. Otto Graham. Oh, wow. So Otto Graham, the future quarterback of the Cleveland Browns is a player on the Rochester Royals and in winning the championship with the Royals. And he obviously goes on to win a ton of, championships with the Cleveland Browns in both the AAFC and the NFL. He's one of only two players in American sports to win championships in two different professional leagues. Now, a guy like a Deion Sanders was on a Braves a Braves team that went to I think maybe maybe not a game 7, but at least a game 6 of a World Series. So others have had the chance to do it, but 
Otto Graham is one of only two guys in American sports to win championships in two different professional leagues. One thing I did want to point out, going back to the um, the integration in the early '40s, um, apparently at one point uh, it says the uh, Chicago had stocked its rosters with members of the Harlem Globetrotters, who I know we talked about a little when we were doing the in memoriam about Curly Neal, who passed away, uh, who worked at the Studebaker plant during the week. So they actually, when they were looking to fill their team and and you know go that route, probably not knowing too much about black basketball, the first thing that probably came to their mind was, well, the Harlem Globetrotters seem to win all the time. Let's just get some of those guys. So I don't know how thrilled they all would have been when they were told they had to work at the Studebaker plant to play. (laughs) But I mean, maybe they were, who knows? So the story, one of the big stories of these early days is George Mikan. Mikan, who gets his start with the Chicago Gears. Mikan is from the Chicago area and stars at DePaul and then goes on and plays one year with the Chicago Gears. And then I believe they fold and Mikan ends up on the Minneapolis Lakers, plays one year with them in the NBL. And then the Lakers as a whole jump to the BAA. And they're in a really strange situation here where the NBL is the one with all of the good players, but the what develops with guys like Mike in, in Minneapolis and that type of thing is that the NBL has the players and the but the BAA, which is has its first year in 46, 47, they're the ones with the cities. They're the ones with the teams in New York, Boston the major cities, Philadelphia, I believe, the major cities of the Northeast. And so that, I think, more than anything, is what makes the merger necessary. The BAA comes about because you have a bunch of hockey owners who are looking for ways to fill their arenas when the hockey team is out of town. Yeah, and you you hear about that a lot of times with you know, just to sort of underscore how low basketball was on the pecking order, you know, as we go forward into like the NBA, you hear about, you know, for the Knicks, the New York Knicks, who we could certainly make fun of the current New York Knicks, but they're a valuable brand. And, you know, they were a cornerstone franchise of the NBA. And if you watch like a history of the Knicks DVD, they talk about, yeah. And then every year for three weeks, the circus was in town. So the Knicks had to go play at like the basement of some Catholic school or something like that. So, you know, stuff that would never have been thought of, but in a lot of ways, basketball was just kind of like, Hey, we got the building and we can, you know, set up a court when we're not using it for other things. The NBL in the 46, 47 season does something really, really interesting, which is that they, even though there had been a regular season and even though there had been a playoffs after the playoffs are held, they decide that they're just going to award the championship to the team with the best regular season record. There's no rhyme or reason to why they do that. And I believe it was Mikan's. Yeah, it was Mikan's Chicago gears who win the playoffs. And, but for whatever reason, the league, 
authorities had decided that for that season, the team with the best regular season record would be crowned the official championship. So that ends up being Rochester, which has Otto Graham as the aforementioned future Browns quarterback. And so Rochester, despite losing the regular season head-to-head meeting with the Gears and losing to them in the playoff finals, were declared the NBL champion. And nothing I read could explain why exactly that was done. And I'm sure the answer is something having to do with them not getting along with the owner who rightfully should have had his team's championship, uh, you know, who actually won the playoffs. Since you mentioned playoffs, it is interesting to me that sort of basketball has always been a playoff sport. You know, if you think back to the time frame we're talking about, football existed for a long time before there was any kind of playoffs. And then there was an NFL championship game, but there was no until really what the mid sixties, there was no NFL playoffs except the championship game. You know, there was no, unless there was a tie, there was just whoever won each division played in the NFL championship game. And then when the leagues merged, that sort of created a playoff system in baseball, there was no playoff system at all outside of the world series until the 1969 season. And then they resisted going even further until 1995 basketball as early as, you know, the forties was kind of like, yeah, let's just have a bunch of teams make the playoffs. So it was always kind of, you know, it's kind of unique among sports in that era. So, one of the things that the BAA wants to do is they want to differentiate themselves from the NBL and they probably start the league maybe with the merger in mind because they want to, the NBL doesn't want a war with the BAA, but the BAA very much wants to differentiate itself from the NBL. And here are some of the suggestions that they thought of. We talked about the 15 minute quarters. They also talked about, having innings with one team having the ball for two minutes, then the other team getting the ball for the next two minutes. Now I have no idea how that would work. Once you scored, would you just, would it be like a pickup game? You'd take I guess the ball. It'd be like an inbound, probably an inbounds in the front court, I guess. Yes. Very strange. And like if the other team stole the ball. Would they be able to have a transition or would they just stop? I, I don't have any idea. And then another thought, and this is actually an interesting one. They thought to wait until the end of the quarter to shoot all the free throws to prevent the stoppages of action that came from all the fouls. Hmm. I I actually think that might be kind of neat to see. Yeah, there, there. I've always not said this with regards to basketball, but like, you know, you find yourself in a lot of arguments with people, and and it's it's almost always one sided, where it's people who love hockey and decide to. hate, you know, prove how much they love hockey by going after other sports, specifically basketball. And it's like, the one thing I will say is like, I do kind of wish that basketball had evolved in such a way where, and it's worse in college, but, but the same in the pros, it would be nice if it had evolved in a way where the end of every close game isn't just nonstop fouling. You know what I mean? Like, as much as I don't like a lot of the arguments that people make against basketball, and sometimes I think they're racially tinged, and sometimes I just think they're, you know, lazy arguments from people who don't watch basketball or whatever. The knock of like, oh, at the end of every game, it takes a million years because they just inbound and foul. That's a legitimate knock. You know what I mean? So something like that would have been interesting and would have certainly altered 
how basketball is played today. And I've always thought too that we allow fouling when a team's up six points or down six points and there's 11 seconds left and they foul it, it, that that's the type of thing that I think I should would like to see discouraged. There should be some sort of formula where like if you're down a certain amount with a certain amount left and it would basically basically if it would be the greatest comeback in the history of basketball, you shouldn't be allowed to do it. Like it should just be like, Oh, the other team should be able to like decline the shots and just keep the ball or something like that. But this is a, this is a digression, but it is. So led by the desire to meld the star players with the big cities, the NBL, the national basketball league and the BAA, the basketball association of America merge in 1949 to form the NBA, the National Basketball Association. And the 1949-50 season of, is the first season of officially known as the NBA. And it is a 17-team league with a 65-game schedule. Many of those teams do not last past the 1949-50 season. And in fact, before the 51, I'm sorry, before the 50-51 season, Six teams fold, and those being the Anderson Packers, who are based in Anderson, Indiana. Those be the Sheboygan Redskins, not like the Washington Redskins. This is two two words, Sheboygan Redskins. I don't think that was the problem. (laughs) And the Waterloo, Iowa Hawks all jump to another, uh, the National Professional Basketball League, which only lasts for... One year. For one year. I have that up here, yeah, just to, some of the teams in that. Um, you had former you had the, the Packers, you had the Sheboygan Redskins, the Louis, Louisville Alumnites, Grand Rapids Hornets, Denver Definers, St. Paul Lights, Kansas City High Spots, and the Waterloo Hawks. So, And the other three teams that leave the – NBA before the 50-51 season are the Chicago Stags, the Denver Nuggets. It's really 1950 to have a professional sports team in Denver is just that that's that seems a little early. Given that there wouldn't even be a team in you know, there was barely there were barely teams in LA or San Francisco at this point and to have a team in Denver in 1949-1950 is just crazy. Well, and I think that's something to underline when you were talking before about, well, the BAA had the big cities and stuff. Big cities obviously matter today. You know, you hear about leagues and, you know, oh, if a New York team is involved or LA. Actually, cities matter less than media markets, but, you know, generally big cities translate to big media markets, although it's not always a one to one comparison. But even more so back then, you know, prior to World War II and then in the couple of years after World War II, you were dealing with a time when the suburbs weren't what we recognize them as today. So you basically had the country and then the cities and such a higher percentage of the population lived in cities and such a higher percentage of the population lived in Northeastern cities or, you know, Midwestern cities. So, being a big deal in that's there's a reason the major league baseball was able to get away for 50 years with 16 teams and what were they in 11 cities or something like that the 16 teams in the major league baseball for 50 years i think that's right 
Yeah. And, you know, a lot of them, it was two teams in the same city because so much of the population was concentrated in the sort of Boston to DC and no farther West than Chicago or St. Louis. So yeah, to have, I mean, to have a team in Denver and that back then Denver was probably comparable to what we'd consider a medium sized town today. Rochester. Yeah. Rochester was probably bigger at the time. I bet it was. So they lose the six teams. They also midway through the season, they lose the Washington Capitals, which brings the number of teams in the league down to 10. And then a couple of years later, they lose the Indianapolis Olympians. And then a couple of years later, the Baltimore Bullets. So by the mid fifties, you have the eight NBA teams that would form sort of the core of the league for the next 10 years or so until they start to expand. So I feel like that's a good transition into the NBA and to sort of talk about their teams and their sort of early expansion and relocation and take that up until we get to the biggest sort of alternate league of all time for the NBA. There is one other competitive league that I want to touch on briefly. Before, I mean, I was talking about the trampoline basketball league in like 2003. That was on, I think it was on Spike TV. So was that not what you were thinking of? No, I wanted to talk briefly about the ABL, which lasted for only one season in the early 1960s. Are you familiar with the ABL? I don't believe I have them listed here, no. So the ABL was founded by Abe Saperstein, who was also the owner of the Harlem Globetrotters. And he was upset that the he had been denied uh, he had been denied an L.A. team for the NBA. So he decides to form his own rival basketball league for the 61 62 season and the star team and the team that wins the only championship is the Cleveland Pipers. And they have an owner. I see. I that's, I, I know the owner, the owner who made his money in the ship building industry. And that would be George M Steinbrenner. The third. Yes. And I, I knew he had been involved in an, a basketball league and the team was the Cleveland Pipers. I did not automatically associate it with that league. Um, Steinbrenner is known for selling a player at halftime during one game, trading him, I think to the, to the team that they were playing against. He, the first coach of the Cleveland Pipers is John McClendon, who was the first African American coach of a major pro basketball team. He does not last the season. He is eventually fired by Steinbrenner and later asked when he, if he thought Steinbrenner was anti-black. He said, no, Steinbrenner is anti-everybody. And so he doesn't find any racial overtones in or undertones, I should say, in the fact that he was fired. But like many a Yankee manager to come, he is fired mid, mid-season. Bill Sharman ends up taking over the great Boston Celtic of the 1950s. And in the only season of the of of the ABL the Cleveland Pipers win the championship Steinbrenner had wanted to defect 
the following year to the NBA. And in fact, he signs Jerry Lucas to a $40,000 contract and he has a secret deal with the NBA commissioner. The Pipers, Steinbrenner's team are going to merge with the Kansas City team and join the NBA. And in fact, the schedule is even printed with the Pipers playing the Knicks in the first game. But the ABL sues to block the move and Steinbrenner and his team have no league and they eventually fold. And then the ABL lasts only half of another season. They fold mid-season. So this whole experiment lasts only a year and a half, but we only almost have a George Steinbrenner team with uh, Jerry Lucas, who was a great college player and a great pro, but we almost didn't think about how different things would have been had Steinbrenner been able to succeed. Yeah. The sports universe in this city and really the, you know, the country would be a much different place now. I did, before we move on, I did want to go back to, it was the bottom link on my page, but, or on my sheet of links here, the earliest pro basketball league, and I'm using the word pro very loosely, was the first, the first one I could find was also called the National Basketball League. It existed from 1898 to 1904. And for context, James Naismith invented basketball in 1891. So this was a league seven years after the sport existed, um, began operations in 1898 to 1899 season. It was originally intended to consist of two separate geographic districts, one based in Philadelphia, the other in New York. The New York district never got off the ground, had teams at the Trenton Nationals, the Hancock Athletic Association, Millville, New Jersey, Glass Blowers, the Camden Electrics, the Trenton Nationals, Pennsylvania, this is, I'll, I'll come back to this. The Bristol Pile Drivers, Chester PA, the New York Wanderers, my favorite team name, which I do believe the Sixers should have a throwback jersey for this team, the Pennsylvania Bicycle Club. <laughs> <laughs> and that just is a name for a basketball team, is the Pennsylvania Bicycle Club. But anyway, that was the earliest example of, a t- of a, any sort of a pro league I could find. So right about the time that the ABL and George Steinbrenner are having their one shining year, the NBA is starting to expand. And it's funny, actually, the first two times that they expand in the 1960s, they do so in Chicago. They start off with a team known as the Chicago Packers, which eventually now that the Chicago Packer team is very interesting and I can sort of speak to this a little bit firsthand because the Chicago Packers eventually become what is now the Washington Wizards. They start off for as the Chicago Packers in 1961 as a nod to the meatpacking industry, but then after one year they changed its name, they changed their name to the Chicago Zephyrs, which, which is Go ahead. I'm sorry. You and I were at a Wizards game one night, Wizards Knicks when I lived in DC where they were giving out stuff about the Zephyrs. You know, I remember that. I didn't remember that it was a game I was at with you, but the Wizards will occasionally wear Zephyr's throwback uniforms, which is just really, it's a very crazy thing to see. So that team goes to Baltimore and then become the Bullets and then eventually the Washington Bullets and then eventually the Wizards. And everybody knows that whole story. But the, the first expansion team is into Chicago, only lasts a couple of years. And then strangely enough, and this is something I don't think you'd ever see today, in 66, they 
the NBA expands again, this time to 10 teams, and they go into Chicago again with the Chicago Bulls. And the Chicago Packers go right up on the list with the short-lived pro football team, the Boston Yanks, of the short-sighted idea of naming a team in your city after a team's after the biggest rival of that city in a sport. <laughs> it's a good point. Like at least, in, I mean, at least with the Boston Yanks, it was like really, really early. By 1961, the Packers Bears rivalry was pretty well established for 40 years. <laughs> yeah, and they both like so. I, I like. I mean, I get what they're all oh, the meatpacking industry, but like, it's not a surprise after a year they had to change that. <laughs> So in the late 60s and 67, you get the San Diego Rockets who eventually evolve into the Houston Rockets as well as the Seattle Supersonics who were around for 40 years before they moved to Oklahoma City. It's funny to think Seattle was in the league before the Milwaukee Bucks, you know, before Cleveland. You, you don't think necessarily of Seattle as being one of the early expansion teams, but they were. Well, and that's one of the things I, I wanted to point out about sort of the early NBA expansion you had or or expansions or moves. You had places like San Diego, Phoenix, Seattle, New Orleans, Milwaukee. These are not cities that have a ton of other teams at the time the NBA went in there. And you still see that to an extent where there's a lot of NBA teams in cities with either one or maybe two professional teams. You know, you still to this day, you talk about Portland is the only professional team in Portland of the big four, Um, Sacramento, San Antonio, these are places that that's Utah, Salt Lake City, Oklahoma City. The NBA has always sort of going back to the 60s or 70s expanded into places where they've either even like a place like Denver that now has four teams. The Nuggets were the second team there. Uh, and I know I know that was folded in from the ABA, which we'll talk about. But, you know, they they were kind of ahead of a lot of the same thing with, with Phoenix. They were the first team in Phoenix. And then you had the Cardinals move there. And then the expansion teams and the other sports in a lot of those cities, the NBA was the first one there. Yeah. And there's no, more that, that is, and I mean, in some like Portland, they're still yeah. the only one there. Sacramento. Yeah. Uh, Orlando. If you think about it, you know, there, there's plenty of them, but it, it started early too. And actually they're, they were, well, uh, never mind. I was going to say they're now because the Chargers are gone. They're one of only two teams in San Diego, but they haven't been in San Diego for a long time. That was a stupid comment. So <laughs> you can feel free to edit that out too. Sure. I'll start singing Beatles songs. So it's a copyright thing and you have to edit it out. <laughs> <laughs> so right about the time, by the time the NBA is at 14 teams, in 1967, you get the American Basketball Association, which the entire goal you come to find out is they form this league with the hopes of bringing out a merger. And it's kind of timed. If you look at the timing, it makes a lot of sense because it was only a year or so after the NFL had agreed to eventually merge with the AFL. So that's sort of what's behind it is let's come up with this new league. 
much like the AFL, it'll be colorful. It'll be sort of renegade and with the eventual hope of merging with the NBA and getting some owners, NBA franchises that might not otherwise have them. The original teams are the Anaheim Amigos, the Dallas Chaparrals, Houston Mavericks, Indiana Pacers, the Denver Rockets, Kentucky Colonels, Minnesota Muskies, New Orleans Buccaneers, New York Americans, Oakland Americans, and the Pittsburgh Pipers, and the San Diego Conquistadors. I believe that the Oakland Americans become the Oakland Oaks almost immediately. So I don't know how long they're actually called that, but the, the chart I have here barely even it doesn't even have there's a tiny like one pixel wide sliver before it says Oakland Oaks. It's like when you look at a map of the US and they have to blow out like Rhode Island because you can't there's not enough room to write Rhode Island on the map. Uh-huh. So it probably not surprisingly that three of these are teams that three of the four I'm about to mention are teams that ended up in the NBA, but the only teams that really were the same throughout in terms of the same city and the same name or close to that are the Pacers, the Nuggets, the Kentucky Colonels, and the Nets. Now, I know the Nets were the New York Americans, or excuse me, the New Jersey Americans, right? Yeah. They started I mean, off as the New York Americans. I don't know how long they actually, actually were that. They were the New Jersey Americans, and then they became the New York Nets, but I'll even count that as similar. But, I mean, you look at some of these teams and you have the Minnesota Muskies became the Miami Floridians, who then just became the Floridians. The New Orleans Buccaneers became the Memphis Pros, who became the Memphis Tams, who became the Memphis Sounds, who became the Baltimore Claws. Like, there was a lot of turnover here. Anaheim Amigos, Los Angeles Stars, Utah Stars. Um so perhaps it's not a coincidence that some of the more stable franchises are the ones, and we'll talk about why and how the end of the ABA came about, but it was very transient, I think it's fair to say. So a couple of the things that they do, they allow players to come out early, and so that's how you get guys like Moses Malone, who who comes directly from high school, let alone coming out early from college, they allow guys who either don't go to college or don't finish college. They also allow one of the early things that they do. There's a player named Connie Hawkins who was implicated in a point shaving scandal, but it sort of comes out through the years that he probably didn't actually do anything wrong and had been a young man who was manipulated by the people, whether it was the, 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 you know, the U.S. attorney or the police or whoever was investigating this. And he confessed to something that maybe he shouldn't have confessed to and that type of thing. It's a whole story that I'm not doing justice to. And he ends up blackballed from the NBA for a number of years. I think he actually plays in that one year of the ABL. I could be wrong about that. But he, a guy like him finds a home in the ABA. The other thing that they do is they take steps to liven up the game. You see the the ABL in 62 had used a, they'd used a 
three-point line and the ABA adopts that. They very famously have the red, white, and blue ball. Do you know whose idea the red, white, and blue ball was? I feel like I've heard this, but I can't remember it now. So this is sort of interesting. The first commissioner of the I do, AB- do want to point out, he did play that year in the ABL. He was with the Pittsburgh Wrens, and he was named the league's most valuable player. Mm-hmm. And then after the league folded, he went and played for four years with the Globetrotters. So that's, that's Connie Hawkins. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah. So the first commissioner of the ABA is George Mikan, who we talked about a little, the first superstar in NBA history. And it's always funny because George Mikan is this tall, lanky guy. He's got glasses. He's just sort of, looks like Buddy Holly, basically. <laughs> like He looks like Buddy Holly, and he's just... Whenever anybody talks about sort of the NBA before... I mean, I guess just, just be blunt. The NBA before black players started to dominate, George Mikan is the one they always mention because this sort of tall, lumbering white guy who couldn't really run and couldn't really jump was the dominant player in the league. And it's always sort of, this was the NBA before it was cool. It's the NBA before it was high flying. And Mike is sort of seen as the epitome of that early 1950s, conservative, boring NBA to think of him 10 or 12 late years later as the commissioner of the ABA. It doesn't really fit, but he's actually the one. It's, it's, Shanana playing at Woodstock. That's a good point. That's a good way to look at it. That's a good way. That's a good point. For those of you who don't know, Shanana, I mean, I, I'm honestly going to guess most people who listen to a sports history podcast also know who Shanana is. But Shanana was very like 50s doo wop, you know, the duck's ass hairdo and the leather jackets and whatever. And for some reason, they ended up at Woodstock and they literally played right before. Uh, the last set of the night, you know, they, they played like before Hendrix came out at three o'clock in the morning or whatever, or you know, whatever it was to end the uh, to end Woodstock. So that's that that's kind of the comparison I thought of. The owners come to Mike and they want to make him the commissioner. He refuses to move to New York, so they decide to put a team in Minneapolis where Mike and Lee live, so that there'll at least be a team in the same city as where the commissioner is. And the red, white, and blue ball is actually Mikan's idea, and he says that he has always had bad eyes, and when he watches the game on TV, it's hard for him to pick up the ball, so he decides to have a red, white, and blue ball, and that in some ways becomes sort of the symbol of the ABA, and even to this day when you see somebody with a red, white, and blue ball, they say, oh, that's the old ABA ball. Connie Hawkins says, quote, when the ball came out, all the guys would have turnovers because when they threw you the ball, it would rotate and you couldn't tell if the ball was far or close. <laughs> so it took us about two months to get used to the ball. And so there's a... This was what, the late 60s? A lot of them were probably stoned. <laughs> <laughs> if they couldn't tell if the ball was far or close. But Yeah, who knows? I mean, I don't know. I mean, at that speed... It's not something you ever considered before. The ball was always a certain color, and now it wasn't. So I, I, I get it. I was just joking. But um, And yeah. then Spencer Haywood, another 
guy who plays in the NBA says, once you shoot, you know everything that you've done wrong with your shot because the rotation in the red, white, and blue. If it spins wrong, you just know it. And then Rick Barry said, that ball sucked. It had hard edges. It would get slick at times. It was a great gimmick, but quality-wise, the ball was horrible. So the ball is probably the most lasting symbol of what the ABA was. It was also just incredibly easy to get a franchise in the NBA. One of the early executives says the price range for a team was about low seven figures. But in reality, if you had a hundred grand and put up a letter of credit, we grabbed you and pulled you into the room. We had guys that came out of the woodwork. We had a dentist that owned a team in San Diego. We had a cable TV operator that was just starting in Utah. So just guys just coming into the league. Pat Boone, the famous, I don't know what you want to call Pat Boone. He's sort of a country soft rock singer of the took 19th. A, took, a lot, took a lot of songs that black artists had recorded first and then recorded a bunch of them. And they got more popular when he, when he released them. Yeah, there was a little bit of that with him. He owns the Oakland team. But strangely enough, players start to defect to... The ABA, Rick Barry defects to the Nets. George Gervin is drafted and plays first with the Virginia Squires and then with the San Antonio Spurs. Spencer Haywood joins the NBA instead of the NBA, the ABA instead of the NBA. Moses Malone comes right out of high school and goes first to Utah and then to St. Louis. But it really sort of starts when Julius Irving instead of going to the NBA, decides to go to the ABA, starting with the Virginia Squires, and then obviously most famously with the New York Nets. Yeah, and you talked about the ball being sort of the contribution and one of the lasting images of the ABA. And if you want to combine the two, kind of Dr. J, what you think of with him is... Basic, and he had some great years on the Sixers and won a championship. What you think of with Dr. J was him in that Nets uniform with the big afro, sort of with the you know, going high up in the air with one hand with that red, white, and blue ball in his hand coming down. Um, our father, uh, grew up outside of Philadelphia was a big Sixers fan for a long time, you know, really liked them in the early eighties when they won that championship. But I remember growing up anytime we'd see like highlights of him, he would say, yeah, he, he as good as he was with the Sixers, you should have seen him in the ABA and getting older and seeing those highlights of him just almost seemed like he was from another planet, you know, in terms of, some of the guys he was playing with and things like that. He was a a force of nature, I guess you would have to describe him as. Yeah. And I think because, and this is something I was about to mention, they don't really have a national TV deal. So they have these sort of small, maybe one-off local TV contracts, but there's just not a lot of footage out there from Dr. J's ABA day. So it's almost become more myth than something you can really wrap your hands around. And 
Dr. J in the ABA is this sort of mythic thing. And everybody says, if you weren't there, you just can't understand what it was like. You know, they, they say he was Jordan before Jordan. Yeah. And you can see a lot of clips and I know you can edit most things together, but you can see clips of him doing things. And then if they cut it together, it's like a similar play by Jordan, you know, 25 years later or whatever, uh, or 20 years later. These teams, the, the problem is, is that they struggle for money almost from the beginning. That's sort of, you talked about the, the cities and the you know teams, everybody's so transient. They're in one city one year, they're in another city the next. And so they really, they never really get the hang of things from a financial point of view. They never really get off the ground as far as financial stability. Earl the Pearl Monroe was approached by the owner after two years with the bullets the owner of the pittsburgh team was talking about paying him a significantly higher amount of money than he was making in the nba but he says that the determining factor was that they wanted to spread my payment out until 2060 and that wouldn't work so i think earl monroe would have been about 120 years old when he stopped getting paid by and what, what would the pay like what would he be getting a five thousand dollar check year at this point it's not like bobby bonilla who still gets you know a decent chunk of change today like no that's a that's a good point too the i'm sorry i just i'm, I'm and this is mostly from the book that uh ESPN did about a year ago called Basketball, a Love Story. They also did a, a like a 10-episode documentary on sort of the history of basketball. But Al Adels, who was the coach of the Golden State Warriors in the mid-1970s, coached them to a championship, I believe, in, um, in uh, 70, 79, I think it was. He says, the, I'm sorry? No, Golden State won in, what, 75? Oh, you're right. I'm sorry. Golden State won in 75. That was Al Adels. Golden State in 75. Correct. He said, the ABA played in Oakland, and we, the Warriors, used the same facilities. We used to practice at a recreation center, so we go there the first day, and I'm the coach, and they tell us we can't practice. They say, aren't you the guys from the ABA? And we say, no, we're from the NBA. They say, oh, it's the ABA that owes us money. So they let us practice. <laughs> And it's not like the NBA was riding real high on the hog in 1975 either. So, And part of the reason for that was that the talent pool had been so diluted by this competition between the leagues. Uh, the other thing that I think we should mention before we move on is that in a lot of ways, more so two things really. First of all, it's dominated by the Indiana Pacers. The Pacers win. The, now, keep in mind also that the Pacers have never won a championship in the NBA in all the years they've been in the NBA. They win two titles in the NBA. ABA. And sorry, they lose two. They win two titles in the ABA in '72 and '73, and then they lose uh, at least I think two more they lose in the final. So they are the dominant team. And in fact, if you look at the, even to this day, when you talk about the golden years of the Indiana Pacers, it's in the ABA. I also should note that as tempting as it is for players, it's also tempting for coaches. Bill Sharman, who we mentioned previously, who had been 
with Steinbrenner in Cleveland and actually wins a championship with the Lakers in 72. He also later jumps to the ABA. Alex Hannum, who had coached the Philadelphia 76ers with Wilt to a championship in 1967, he jumps to the ABA. So even as the players are jumping, you see a lot of coaches jumping too. And as the seventies go on, these teams are starting to play exhibition games against each other. And there's sort of a, almost sort of a soft merger going on until they agree to the actual merger in 77 and 76. There's plenty to talk about with the merger. And I do want to get into that in a second. Just a couple of things as we leave, you mentioned Dr. J and, and the footage that, you know, there's not much footage left. One of the things that does survive, which adds to his lore, but also is a significant contribution to what's part of NBA culture today is the last season of the ABA during their all-star break. They came up with a concept known as the slam dunk contest. And that was when Dr. J did his famous dunk from the free throw line, which you've seen repeated often, but nobody had ever really done anything like that before. That was sort of a street ball kind of thing that you just weren't seeing in the NBA at that point, especially and definitely not in college basketball. And that's one of the things that survives. I have a some sort of tape somewhere where it's got the 76 uh, or whatever you said would have been 76. Yeah, the 76 ABA all-star game dunk contest on it. So that's, you know, and that still can, you know, exists to this day as sort of a cultural part of the NBA. And then the thing you can't gloss over is the three-point line. I don't know if they invented the three-point line, but they certainly popularized it, made it. They had had that in the ABL in 62, too. Yeah, but they made it mainstream. They made it a part of the game that could not be denied. I mean, the NBA incorporated that right away, right, when they merged. I think it took them a couple of years. The first year of the three-point line was 78-79, I believe. So they went without it for two years. Yeah. But that, that but they put it in pretty quick. When you consider the NFL took 20 years to adopt their 30 years to adopt the two-point conversion from the AFL, you know, that and and now and for a long time that three-point line went from sort of a curiosity to a nice to have to a Basically, it's the centerpiece of most contenders now is shooting three-point shots. So Entire offenses are built around it. Yeah, and there's you know stats that basically say if you're going to do anything but shoot a layup or a jump shot, you should shoot a three-pointer because shooting a long two percentage-wise, whatever, like that's a fundamental, that's a Babe Ruth-level altering of the game. You know, how Babe Ruth, all of a sudden, everybody wanted home runs. The three-point line is kind of the same thing, and they didn't invent it, but you can be sure that it wouldn't have gotten incorporated into the NBA ever, probably, definitely not that quickly if it wasn't for... It wouldn't have been like, well, the, this league that was around for two years did it, you know. It was the ABA was the reason there's a three-point line. Absolutely. So by 75-76, by the end of the season, they're down to... Seven teams. There's the Denver Nuggets, New York Nets, San Antonio Spurs, the Kentucky Colonels, Indiana Pacers, Spirits of St. Louis, and the Virginia Squires. Three teams 
well, actually one team folded before the season started and then two teams fold relatively early into the season. The Baltimore, Utah, and San Diego all fold at some point. So they end the season with only six teams. I'm sorry, seven teams. And then the Virginia Squires fold immediately after that season ends. Virginia Squires played in Norfolk, Virginia, which is another one of those things where you just look and you realize that no, other than maybe something in baseball in the 1880s or something, no professional team had played in that area of the country, in that area of Virginia ever before or since. So it's always funny to think about that, especially when you figure that they had Dr. J for a year or two, the biggest star in professional basketball. So they're down to six teams. They're down to Denver, the Nets, the Spurs, Kentucky Colonels, Indiana, Indiana Pacers, and the Spirits of St. Louis. The Kentucky Colonels agree to be bought out relatively quickly. The NBA only wants to take four teams. And the St. Louis Spirits, they... The owner, by the way, took the buyout and then bought the Buffalo Braves who are, are these days the, the Los Angeles Clippers, but that why he took the buyout and went and bought right back into the NBA. The Buffalo Braves who eventually, now where do the Buffalo Braves go after Buffalo? They go somewhere else, right? They went to San Diego and became the Clippers and now they're the Los Angeles Clippers. Okay. So there was nowhere in between. I was trying to remember there was somebody somewhere in between Buffalo so. and San Diego. I don't think there was though. But the owners of the St. Louis Spirits, they strike a little bit of a harder bargain. And I think what I've heard is that they really wanted, they wanted to be in the league. They didn't want to be bought out. They wanted to have a team in the NBA, but the NBA, for whatever reason, decides that they want the other four teams. And so they come up with this agreement that has become almost legend in NBA history, which is that the owners of the St. Louis Spirits will hold in per, in perpetuity one seventh of the TV rights for the four ABA teams: the Spurs, the Nets, the Pacers, and the the Spurs, the Nets, the Pacers, and the Nuggets. They will hold one seventh. They will get one seventh of the TV money for those four teams in perpetuity, and so. That ends up being, I think, hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars. So they offered the Colonels and the Spirits uh, $3 million each to fold, which the Colonels took, which we've talked about. Uh, The Spirits did not want to take it. It was two brothers, Ozzy and Daniel Silna, S-I-L-N-A. They did not want to take that. They negotiated their own deal with their lawyer, you know, on, you know, with the NBA when their lawyer was assisting, they agreed to the following. The Silnas would be paid for any Spirits players drafted to the NBA by NBA teams, an amount that came to roughly $2.2 million. On top of that, the Silnas would also get one-seventh share of each of the former ABA teams' visual media rights. So it was 57% of a full share that every other NBA team would get. And again, they have no operating costs. They have no salaries to pay. They're, they're nothing. They just they don't have to keep the lights on. They're a defunct entity. And, you know, you can make the argument that, okay, it was 1976 or 75, whatever, 76. The NBA was at a lull. I mean, there was 
TV rights in general were outside of the NFL were nothing compared to what they are. And the NBA was also down. This was the years before Magic and Bird came in and then let alone Jordan and then external forces like cable television and everything else. So they took, struck this deal. And I'm sure there were people who were like, that was dumb. They're not ever going to make $3 million out of this. They got what was estimated to be $300 million. Again, to do nothing between that deal and, uh, where's the article? That deal and about seven years ago, they made $300 million You know, on an annual basis. They were getting checks, which added up to $300 million. Every time the NBA tried to buy them out, I think I read something that in like the mid 80s, they were close to buying them out for like 50 something million dollars. And then they changed their mind at the last minute. They finally made a deal the last time before the NBA was going to renegotiate their contract in like 2015. Upfront payment, $500 million on top of the $300 million they had already made on the deal over the years. And I guess one of the reasons that I've read, I don't see it in this article, but I guess the the reason they finally did it was part of the deal was like, they can't bequeath it. Like it can't just continue on in their family forever. Uh And since they're getting up there, they were like, fine, we'll just do it. You know what I mean? But that's what I read the situation was. Yeah. And I think that that's also, I don't know when the 30 for 30 came out about the spirits of St. Louis. It was sometime, I think probably like 2012 and, I think the story ended up getting, it was the first I had heard of it was when that 30 for 30 came out about the spirits. I think it had gotten so much attention that the NBA was just sort of embarrassed by it. And so they were super motivated to wrap it up and get it taken care of. But that is the ABA merger in 76. And it took a while it was not until the Spurs almost 20 years later than an eight, or over 20 years later when they beat the Knicks in 99 that one of those four ABA franchises would actually win a championship. And none of them have other than the Spurs, the Nuggets, Nets, and Pacers all have not won championships. So you could do a whole show. You could do a, you know, a series of shows and people have on the ABA, but they bring in those teams in the uh, in the mid seventies and all the while they're continuing to expand. They brought in the new Orleans jazz who later became the Utah jazz. And then they bring in Dallas in 1980. And then I think in the late eighties is when you sort of start to see this rapid expansion, two teams in 88, Charlotte and Miami, two teams in 89, Minnesota and Orlando, They have the Canada expansion in 1995, Toronto, which has worked out great, and Vancouver, which worked out very poorly. And then in 2004, they bring in the Charlotte Bobcats to replace the Charlotte Hornets, who had moved to New Orleans. And then the Charlotte Bobcats now are the Charlotte Hornets, and that's a whole other story. So the NBA eventually gets to a very round 30 teams. And I don't know if there's any expansion coming in the future, but I wouldn't rule it out. I think they'll almost certainly go back to Seattle at some point. And now that the NHL has broken the sort of 30 teams barrier, you know, for quite a while, we were at 32 in the NFL and then 30 teams with the other three leagues. Now that the NHL has gone up to 31 and they're going to 
be adding a team in Seattle next year to go up to 32. Uh, and they've talked like, hey, we'll go up a couple more. You know, they've talked about that. These other cities will most like these other sports, basketball specifically, will most likely break that ceiling. You would imagine Seattle gets a team and then whether it's Vegas or, you know, there's plenty of other locations that you could argue for, but you would imagine within the next five years, there will at least be an announcement that two new teams are being added. So I had one more kind of rival league or not even a rival league. One other sort of professional basketball league that I wanted to touch on before we wrapped up. All right. So real quick, before we wrap up, I just want to talk real quick about the continental basketball association, the CBA, which is a, I guess you could almost call it a minor league that was in the, that was around actually for over 60 years from 1946 to 2009. This was a league that had teams in some near major cities, but also in other places, you know, teams like teams in places like Albany, New York, you know, Phil Jackson got his head coaching start with the Albany patroons of the, of the CBA. And so th- that was that type of league. It was a league that was started and formed in 1946 under a different name and then sort of gradually developed a le- uh, relationship with the NBA, where the NBA was almost sort of a minor league to the CBA. Uh, teams could sign players from the CBA to 10 day contracts. And then once they if they were not signed by their the team in the NBA that had brought them in, they would then be able to go back to their CBA team. By the 90s, players from the CBA were regularly being signed by any NBA teams, and some of them went on to pretty decent careers in the NBA. Actually, the one of the most prominent is a guy that we both know well, John Starks, who'd been playing with, I think it was Oklahoma City of the... That would make sense because he went to Oklahoma State, so that would make sense. He'd been playing with, I think it was, like I said, I think it was Oklahoma City with the CBA, and then the CBA lasts till 2009. They shut down in 2009 in the midst of the economic downturn in that year, but they almost die 10 years earlier, and that was because of the actions of the great executive who later went on to the Knicks, Isaiah Thomas, Isaiah Thomas buys the CBA in 1999. He goes on a couple weeks after buying it. He cuts player salaries by one third, turns down the offer from the NBA to buy it for $11 million, continues to run it for a little while longer. He then takes the offer to be head coach of the Pacers has to place the league into a blind trust, which means no team can make any moves. And he talks about selling it to the Players Association, the NBA Players Association. That never happens. And the league eventually folds a year later. Or the league eventually folds, I should say, and then they come back a year later. But by this point, the NBA has expressed its interest in no longer doing business with the CBA as a feeder league. And this is about when they're starting to come up with their own yeah, NBA Development League. Development League, which is now the G League. So that was a the main blow to, to the CBA. So everybody always says Isaiah Thomas ruined the CBA or he killed the CBA. 
that's an overstatement, but he certainly did not do a good job during his brief time wanna, in charge. You want to hear some from 1978 to 1986 CBA commissioner, Jim Drucker created several new rules to raise fan interest, which were then adopted by the league. You want to hear some of these? Sure. Season standings were changed from a win loss percentage to the seven point system. During each game, seven points were awarded three for winning the game and one point for each quarter in which a team outscored their opponent. Team standings were determined by the number of points rather than win-loss percentage. So theoretically, if you, were, if you outscored another team three quarters and lost the game, you would get three points and the other team would only get four. A player cannot foul out of the game. After a player's sixth personal foul, the opposing team receives an automatic free throw. That one I don't hate in an experimental league. There are things I like in experiment. The first one is dumb. The second one, I don't hate that in an experimental league. No, especially when you figure that you probably got one or two really good players on every team. So you it's don't not want like people are going to be mad they came to see so and so when he's, you know. Yeah. So during the 82, 83, and 83, 84 seasons, overtime games were decided by the team that scored the first three points in overtime. During the 84, 85 season, that rule was modified so that victory went to the first team to lead by three points in overtime. It's like a pickup game. By 87, 88, that rule was superseded by a regular five minute overtime. A couple more. Um, 81, 82 season, they created a six by five no call box, an area in front of the baskets in which any contact in the box between offensive and defensive players was to be an automatic defensive foul, um, which is kind of, that's like how there's the no charge area now. Yeah. It's, it's similar. Um, variation of the rule would be adopted by the NBA in 2002, which is the arc. Uh, CBA offered a money back guarantee. If before the start of the second quarter, the fan left the game, you could get your money back. So if you just went for the first quarter, you could leave and get your money back. Um, you could be just like stopping off on your way home, I guess. Uh, fouling is okay. That's more standard. High profile, big money promotions. That's all normal, uh, you know, weird stuff. And the rest of it's more like promotions that you you see in minor league sports, but you know, I give him credit for trying some stuff. Yeah, no, totally. And it was, it was something that was around for a very long time. It was around for over 60 years and you don't often get that with, with those types of leagues. So, all right, well, this was a, a very fun excursion into the history of basketball leagues that have come about uh, over the last 70 or 80 years. So, Andrew, did you have anything to add before we wrapped up? Uh, no, I think this might be a good time to announce that you and I are starting our own professional basketball league. And we didn't even get into all the sort of the the weird things that have come about in recent years, the big three and all that type of thing. So, yeah, well, that's, can, an episode can only be so long. And well, that, that is uh, that, that should be our, that's our they're po- telling us at least. <laughs> What'd you say? So that's what they're telling us. <laughs> All right, well, we hope you enjoyed this, our first episode devoted entirely to basketball, and we have a lot more of those coming. So until next time, I'm Dan Newman. And I'm Andrew Newman. Goodbye, old sports. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hey there, sports history fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, 
and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. Join George Bozica, the president of the PFRA, and myself, John Bozica, each month for the Professional Football Researchers Association official podcast. We'll discuss the history of the game, the many names of the game, and so many different things for you, making the history of football not only entertaining, but fun at the same time, as we join you on the Sports History Network on the official PFRA podcast. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.